It's oh, your yeah. topic. It's my fucking topic? <laughs> Give me a break. 104 episodes, you don't know what your fucking topic is. I've had enough of this. <laughs> what the hell? Jesus you Christ. Go, yeah. yeah, you go after me. It's final. Sorry, Ryan. There's a million things going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Hey, I'm not the only one who's ever fucking forgot it was his topic. I right? think you are. <laughs> we, not true. I, we've forgotten other things. I don't think either of us have ever forgotten we were up next. I've forgotten plenty of times that I had to have a film to throw back. That happens a lot to me. But I never forget my topic. <laughs> Shit. Sometimes I make a game time decision. I'll like come and I'm like, well, I've got a couple. I haven't sure. decided yeah. yet. I'm often unsure. Yeah. 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 <coughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I remembered. Well, <laughs> let's just say I'm unsure of what the topic yeah, is going to yeah. be. You know? <laughs> It'll be a game time decision for me. That's a that's a that's a two hour from now problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, wow. I the truth this guy's starting to get on my It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me, as always, is... Andrew Stasulis. And... Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast in which one of us... The hosts selects a theme for the week, and the other two pick movies in response to that theme, and we come on here and have it out, double feature style. It was my turn to pick the topic this week, and I was following the Zodiac, and I asked them to bring me Geminis, twins, doppelgangers, body swaps, anything in that direction. And they brought me British cinema. <laughs> and also movies that, of course, address the topic. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's really all I've got to say about this. You know, we can uh, expand on these, these variations of, of the Gemini movie, you know. Um, as we record this, I believe, on uh, Kanye West's birthday, famous Gemini. Oh, um, very chaotic. Sign. There's definitely two wolves inside that. that yes, man. yes. Just like <laughs> at least, <laughs> just like uh, Gemini uh, Donald J. Trump. Anyway, yeah. Who had the earlier film? Uh, Ryan, you had uh, the earlier film. Why don't you tell us uh, about the Bond you brought tonight? Yes, 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 yes. Well, you, you buried the lead a little bit there. I was going to say, you know, if we all listen very carefully for a faint whisper. On the breeze, here comes another capital B Bond alert. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't resist. I was looking at some doubles 
I was doing a deep dive into various doubles, various doppelgangers, various twins, and then I learned that 007 himself haunted himself <laughs> in, in 1970 with a film called The Man Who Haunted Himself, 1970, directed by Basil Dearden. This film is an adaptation of a novel from the 50s called The Strange Case of Mr. Pelham. And in this film, Roger Moore plays the titular Harold, well, not the titular, uh, he, well, he does play the man, but he does play Harold Pelham, <laughs> the titular from the novel. <laughs> and also the titular man who haunted him. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, the film has a very curious opening where Roger Moore is driving down the road. He's on the, the M4, which is the same road that killed director Basil Dearden very shortly yeah. after this film came out and the film does open with a car accident and Harold Pelham is driving and you know it's a bit mysterious he seems to start fancying himself driving a, a much faster car an exciting car and he does sort of lose control gets in an accident and on the uh, when he's on the operating table in the hospital he does briefly die upon resurrection there's a very curious moment where we realize he has two heartbeats and the doctors are a bit suspicious. They give the machine a little whack. Things go back to normal. And we think things are okay. But as time goes on, there's all these curious happenstances that are occurring in Harold Pelham's life where people are referencing the fact it was great seeing you at the pool hall the other night. And he's like, I wasn't at the pool hall the other night. We've got pretty ladies saying, hey, it was great, great seeing you in bed the other night. And he's like, I wasn't, I wasn't in bed the other night. Uh, and all these mysteries just keep building and building, and he starts to suspect perhaps there's a double out there. Somebody impersonating Harold Pelham and really disrupting his life. Now, so that's the basic synopsis of this movie, but it is an incredibly charged object that is impossible to take out of the context of the James Bond universe. And I think that it's very fruitful and a fun way of reading this film as it kind of being a becoming for Roger Moore of him not realizing that he maybe has James Bond within himself and that it is James Bond who is haunting Roger Moore. Uh, this is even referenced very explicitly at one point in the film where Roger Moore does say, you know, not all espionage is like James Bond in Her Majesty's Secret Service, but lo and behold, it's there in him all the time because the Harold Pelham character is like an inverse Bond. He doesn't fuck. He's uh, very stuffy in a not cool way, even like by the standards of that era of Bond being kind of a loser anyways. Uh, he doesn't gamble. He takes a back seat to his wife's gambling. He just wears the same thing every day. He's not very suave. All these things are, you know, what characterizes Harold Pelham, but it seems that this double of his does have a lot of suave. He does have a lot of sexual proclivity. He is a gambler. He likes fast cars. He likes adventure. So yeah, I mean, you know, this movie, right, like, it's it's perfectly serviceable. I was entertained. It is very flat, boring British cinema from 1970. But I think if, you know, you come hoping to have a good time uh, experiencing pre-James Bond, this is three years before he was in Live and Let Die, I think it's, a, it's an engaging experience. So I walked away a bit tickled. Uh, from the man who haunted himself, and I'm excited to hear how <laughs> you both reacted to it as well. Thank you very much, Ryan. 
Andy, why don't you tell us about your man who haunted himself? Well, I should tell you about my men, right? You know? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. You know, I I should stress part of the uh, sort of reasoning behind my pick before I tell you about the pick as well, you know, and I, I, I made this very clear to Ryan almost immediately, you know, that I feel, you know, sometimes we have cycles where we end up sort of watching a lot of really good movies, just, you know, just amazing things that blow us away, expand our understanding of the moving image and, you know, become all timers for us. And I feel like we've had a string of those of of excellent weeks with excellent films. And every now and then I just feel the urge to just cleanse my palate with some grade A or grade Z trash and filth. And for some reason, this was the week I felt the need to hit a reset button on on all this, you know, amazing stuff, the high highs of something like Bill Douglas's Comrades. So I knew I was going to pick some 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 garbage. And uh, this one uh, sort of immediately came to mind for me. I'd seen it once before. And at the time, I just sort of remember feeling very dirty after watching it. And and I just thought, boy, this will this will be a good one. Uh, I I texted Ryan. We got one coming from Andy's rubbish bin, as he called it yes. on our hundredth <laughs> episode. I reached into the discount the discount bargain bin and pulled one out of the hat. Uh, that would be a film from 1989 called Edge of Sanity, directed by. Gerard Kikcoin, who, to my uh, limited research, seems to be a guy who who got his start working with Jess Franco as an editor and then drifted into softcore and some hardcore porn and music videos and and this sort of uh, slasher sexy trash. And this is uh, a sort of reimagining of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, starring the one and only Anthony Perkins, again, in the sort of titular role, but, but well, I guess the title isn't Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. In this case, it's The Edge of Sanity. <laughs> so this is uh, more or less on its surface uh, a, a seemingly straight adaptation of... Jekyll and Hyde. However, it is uh, also sort of put through the 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 sort of ringer of this this curious production design that also kind of makes it look like it's set in the 1980s at times, even though the film is set in the 1880s. It's set in Victorian London, but a lot of the costumes uh, and and sets at times feel very much. Uh, contemporary for for when the film is made. Uh, This, you know, trashy take on Jekyll and Hyde, though, sees Anthony Perkins as Dr. Henry Jekyll, uh, whose experiments are not with some magical serum. In this case, it's just straight up 
crack cocaine. <laughs> so in this film, he invents crack. Yeah, he he. It, you know, spoiler: we're, we're burying the lead here, but but he invents crack and then unleashes uh, his his demonic alter ego. Uh, Jack Hyde in this case because they're also going to stuff in uh, Jack the Ripper into this tale as well. Um, I mean, that's pretty much it as far as the plot goes. It's pretty straightforward (laughs) in that sense, but it is a whacked out journey into sexual fetish, uh, trauma, abuse, violence. Uh, A lot of people get slashed up in this. And Anthony Perkins is doing his best to eat every piece of scenery he can find, going all out, giving us two, two distinct personas, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, this is a a nasty little film. And I got to say, on my second viewing, I think I had a lot more fun with it than my first viewing. I didn't really love it the first time around, but I remember sort of like cataloging it as a... Boy, this is a whacked out little film made pretty much near the end of Anthony Perkins' career, you know? And I think, like, at times when you see what he's going through in this film, when he's going, like, full hide, like, you can see a man who is, you know, creeping towards his untimely demise. Um, Yeah, he does not look well at times. And how much of it is acting and how much of it is maybe what was actually going on, I mean, we, we know... Anthony Perkins was a very tormented man who did, for much of his life, seem to live a a sort of double existence. So I think there's a lot to, to kind of pick apart there as well. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's a weird one. And I was joking beforehand, like we were watching it, and at a certain point, even my my girlfriend Hillary was viewing it with me. She said, "Boy, this movie is making me feel like I'm." on the edge of my sanity. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's one that we're going to pick, uh, pick apart tonight. And I think it does have a lot in common in certain respects, or it touches on a lot of very similar ideas to the man who haunted himself. So I think we're going to have a pretty good discussion, but that is edge of sanity. Thank you very much. And yeah, these films do indeed have, uh, quite a bit in common, Uh, Aside from the obvious, they're both set in London, of course. Um, But yeah, they they are like, I suppose, most doppelganger-type things uh, about the duality of man, right? You know? And, like, they're also, because they're British tales, they're about repression uh, as well, you know, both of them very explicitly so. And I, it, it's certainly fascinating that both films, as Andy so eloquently put it about Perkins and you about Dearden, Ryan, uh, both films foreshadow uh, key figures' deaths in real life, you know? I mean, it, it is insane that Basil Dearden died on the same highway that uh, multiple accidents and deaths occur uh, in this film. And and like Andy said, uh, Perkins is uh, looking very unwell, uh, especially as Hyde. And of course, some of it's makeup, but he's also looking unwell, you know? Um, and I read, you know, it was funny to see a couple, like, quotes from the time, you know, about both films that they are both kind of, like, out of date 
uh, films, you know. I think Dearden's film is a 50s psychological thriller, but it's 1970. Uh, and, you know, he's still plodding along, you know, a guy yeah. that started his career in the 30s. Totally. Really, the height of his career was the 50s, working at Ealing and working in the studio system. Kind of lost his way when he went independent, you know, in the uh, a little later period of his career. But... Uh, on the flip side, Edge of Sanity is very much a film that you maybe would expect to see in like 1971, you know, like a Giallo film or what obviously came to mind, a Ken Russell film. Oh, yeah. Um, especially with, I don't know if you guys have seen Crimes of Passion, the Ken Russell movie. I'm familiar with um, it. I know what it looks like. Yeah, it's a very comparable piece to Edge of Sanity, and especially because it includes Anthony Perkins as a reverend who goes around in a trench coat jerking off all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, And it's a very memorable Perkins performance, and I think that film and this film are sort of linked in terms of what Perkins is is doing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, really, they're, you know... Golden chip to to Ryan because his his you know duo actually met face to face. I wanted to see Anthony Perkins meet face to face, you know, at some point if that was possible. Um, but still, right? Uh, they're about you know what's in, inside of us, right? You know, or secretly hiding in inside. Yeah, of us, yeah, and know? it's just funny how these films then kind of become their own weird doppelgangers in their similarities and then also radical differences because man who haunted himself kind of even has that Brannigan energy of sleepy London. It looking like kind of looking like shit. Like it's just really sturdy and routine. There are so many shots, just unbelievably flat shots of Roger Moore crossing streets and then walking into stores. <laughs> the fact cars that we're pulling up. Yeah. Dude. Cars pulling up all that sort of thing. And then of course, edge of sanity looks fucking crazy. And at times I was wondering if it was even supposed to be set when it's set. I couldn't tell if when he becomes Dr. Jekyll, that it is suddenly the eighties. It almost seemed like that part of that was the idea, but it was never really explicitly, called out because it almost feels like the architecture changes. I mean, the, 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 the garish color lighting really does that for it. And so, yeah, it was, it was kind of funny reading it that way. That one film is the haunted double of the other film, you know? So there's like multiple layers of Gemini's here. I feel like I did want to clarify too, because the, the edge of sanity, you know, I, I did think it was, it was very bad. I had a lot of fun, but I wouldn't call it I wouldn't classify this under Andy's rubbish bin. I want to like retroactively make clear oh. what I would call Andy's rubbish bin. Because remember, the films I was throwing in Andy's rubbish bin are the kind of films you would find in a rubbish bin, right? Like Quicksilver, White Squall. These are the kind of things that would be, you know, $3 at Walmart, Stalin, maybe even Shadas, right? This film is more along the lines of The Gauntlet Gutter, which we do explore uh, with with some frequency, not particularly often, but I think this is you know more like the the um, Doris Wishman Gas Pump Girls, some of the nastier uh, Death Row Game Emmanuel. Show Emmanuel. I would classify it in there. So I know you were you were actively trying to go to Andy's rubbish bin, but I actually think you stumbled and fell in the gutter. Uh, and I wow. appreciate that quite a bit. I you know so I would just I would say that I want to clarify my definition 
of your rubbish bin because yeah. I think it's distinct. That's a, that is a curious distinction as far as I'm concerned because I would I would imagine this being found in a similar bargain bin. Purchase, it's too dirty. But- it's too dirty. They don't got this at Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that that might be true. That might be true. This might not be found in a Walmart, but uh, yeah, I guess I guess yeah. That that on a certain level is is nice to know that this has been promoted outside yeah. of the. It has a promotion to the gutter. Yeah, it it's is. a promotion. It is. To I the would gutter. rather be drove swimming in the gutter for for sure. <laughs> All right. So thank, well, thank you. you for that clarification. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. I'm sure the listeners appreciate that as well. <laughs> Oh man. It's funny you were saying the the sort of sleepy energy of the man who haunted himself. And and yes, maybe again, Marsh, from from what you were saying, it's 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 potentially because, you know, Basil Deer didn't, you know, doesn't quite have that swinging London energy, which he clearly is trying to like showcase at several points in the film. And I, I did kind of like laugh because there is 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 a scene later in the film when, you know, we we presume it's it's very confusing and ambiguous when when the doubles really start, you know, flying left and right. And and we do like lose track in this sort of like three card Monty or I guess two card Monty in this case of who's who. But there's this point where it's sort of like you know, uh, uh, Roger Moore is like encouraged to come out of the shell a little bit. It's like, all right, I'm going to take my wife dancing. And they go to this like <laughs> swinging London club. Yeah. And the first thing we see is this very lively, like swinging London rock band on the stage playing what sounds to me like a very upbeat song. And then we cut to the crowd and everyone is slow dancing like a bunch of zombies. Yeah. And, and Throw a like, polarizer on it and put it in a, a, an Adam Curtis movie, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, this is supposed to be the part where it's like, wow, he's really cutting loose. And they're just slow dancing to this like swinging London rock song. And I, I guess part of me was like trying to read that as like an intentional critique, but I also was just kind of like, I don't know if he's got the energy to really pull off the, the 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 wildness that was supposed to be going on in this particular moment. No, I think Basil Dearden was most at home and most excited during all the merger and acquisition boardroom scenes. That's when he felt most relaxed and engaged with with the material at hand. <laughs> no way, dude. I think both car scenes are good. Oh, yes, but... I take that back. The car scenes are good. Yes. Yeah. Undoubtedly. The car mounts, like, he's very invested. And look, I've seen a lot of Basil Dearden films, unfortunately. And for I'm kind of an apologist of his, because I think he did make quite a few, you know, really good movies. Uh, but he's good with cars. I know this, mm. you know. He's good on location, and he's good with cars. Um and you see that here, you know, you those are impressive sequences, but you're right. Uh, it's, you know, it's like when the classic Hollywood filmmakers got to 1970. And in this case, this, he's also British. So like, uh, that's the feeling <laughs> he's got of that the working film. against him. You know, what's amazing. <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys realized this, uh, but you also gave us a secret theme for this week. Spotlight, Tony Spratling, the cinematographer of both films. No Shut way. Up. No yep. way. That's crazy. Yeah. I can't believe I didn't fucking double check that. And he's That's barely so shot anything. He's only shot five movies. He was mostly 
one of Britain's premier second unit directors. So he shot second unit for the biggest films in England, Dirty Dozen, etc. right? So like he mostly did that. And I also read he shot over 2000 commercials. Wow. Yeah. You know, Damn, <laughs> that fucks me up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> that definitely, though, kind of tracks if you think about the visual styling of Edge of Sanity, I think even more so than The Man Who Haunted Himself, because it is a very, for, you know, what it is, this sort of just like filthy fucking thing, like, it looks really good. Yeah. And, and it's there are a lot of shots, yeah, that do have this almost like advertising sheen to them, especially for that era, the the like late 80s, early 90s. I mean, yeah. it's very Music video glossy. commercial sheen. Yeah. Yes, music video commercial kind of sheen, you know? Like the, the lighting, it's very dynamic. It's very glossy. It's very sharp. And you know what? Also like mentioning the idea that it is, and it does for the director as well. I think owe a lot to uh, the the visual design of like Ken Russell's movies. Uh, that makes sense then when you consider that this cinematographer was a long running kind of second unit director because their job is often to come in and sort of replicate someone else's style, right? Yeah. To to sort of fit in and get the coverage that they need that's going to look and feel like their movie. So I can almost imagine the conversation being like, you think we can make this look like a Ken Russell movie a little bit? Like, yeah, let's do it. Interesting. You know? I mean- the canted angles, the the lighting, mm-hmm. the the design, the, especially like the sets, all that kind of stuff, and the way even the, the costumes sets are filmed. Yeah, the costumes. Yeah, all of it. You know, like yeah, the whole Madonna sort of like vibe. I mean, it's it's such a weird fucking movie because it is really like cramming so much stuff in. Like it's like it's not just that we're adding Jack the Ripper, but like we're also adding crack cocaine explicitly <laughs> and adding like, yeah, all the sex workers in London are in like glittery silver and black. Yeah. Like, they all look like Madonna from like the like a virgin era. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, what is this, you know? Like, it's juggling a lot, and it's also juggling, like, soft core, and it's also juggling, like, real scuzzy shit, real horror, like, disgusting horror effects, you know? Yeah, it's weird that it's such a stuffed movie in that sense with all these different elements, and yet it is extremely redundant. But I guess that's sort of the case with sleaze like this, because it does feel like a pornography film, you know, where it's just... Each sequence is sort of repeating the previous. There's, there's he goes not. Back to yeah. the brothel. I mean, they, they basically have like three sets, and he just keeps like going in the triangle. Right. You know. Exactly. Yeah, it does like very much resemble porn in, in that in that sense. So it doesn't surprise me that that is like primarily where that director was working for for so long. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that the budget, whatever it it may have been on the film went to like two things, Anthony Perkins and like the production design. Yeah. Like that's, that's where it went, you know? And, and probably a lot of that on like costumes, mm-hmm. uh, especially, you know, because really there isn't, as you've described, like much to it other than that. And, and I think again, one of the like key differences between these two films is you know, in The Man Who Haunted Himself, like, we we ride on that film through the mystery, through the ambiguity, through the confusion. But 
in the case of Edge of Sanity, there is no ambiguity whatsoever. There's no mystery, in part, you know, because I think people are very familiar with the story of Jekyll and Hyde. But I think, again, this film's ultimate goal of what it's trying to deliver to its audience, it's 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 not really interested in that all. There, there There's no... There's no play with that. And it's like you said, like, oh, I might, I kind of wish they'd like confronted themselves at a certain point. It's like, well, yeah, but that's a different movie. Like, yeah. this was like, let's show some tits and then let's show those tits get cut up. And then let's have Anthony Perkins like just smoking a crack pipe in like a dark alley. Like, <laughs> yeah. and he that's... looks like a goth. He looks like the cure or yeah. like, you know, again, very like modern. Robert Smith, dude. Yeah. I kept writing like, looking like Robert Smith in the club or whatever, you know, like he, well, it's actually a cross between like Cesar, the somnambulist from Caligari and Robert Smith from the cure. And he's just sort of like lurking around, you know, the brothel. And, and again, so much more investment in the visual style of the brothel scenes than like the scenes at home, you know, it's like, you can tell where this movie's energy went. And in that sense, I do think like the man who haunted, himself uh succeeds much more at playing with the the difference like the differences between the two the two guys because you know pelham stays repressed and confused for so long whereas perkins like as soon as he smokes the crack it's like (laughs) bye jekyll you know like there's really not much jekyll left you know it's only a couple (laughs) scenes later when you know he's supposedly jekyll at this dinner party and he just stands up and gives like this evil you know like there are no morals speech starts to start steal the food off of everyone's plates yeah But what do we really know of freedom? My God, if real freedom were offered you, you'd run for cover, you'd hide, you'd be terrified. But I thought I was free. I mean free to do whatever you pleased. What if I followed my every instinct completely? You mean absolutely no rules, no laws? No laws, no proprieties, no holes barred. I see a piece of food I want, I take it. Henry, please. I see a woman I want, I take her as well. Hold on, Jekyll. You all act as if our manners, our morality were handed down to us by God. But they are. No, madam, they're not. We made them up by mutual agreement. But what if I don't agree? What then? I clap you in irons and throw you in prison, straight off. You'll have to catch me first. (laughs) I like the idea it's residual Jekyll. (laughs) You know, he's like fully converted with this crack cocaine and there's just like a little bit of that guy left. Cause that's like, that's like the bonkers thing, like about this movie that I, I do find in a weird way, like, you know, perversely charming is that it's like the idea of going into this movie and being like, all right, what if Jekyll and Hyde, but crack, you know, (laughs) it's like, it kind of destroys the whole premise of its source material. Because in its like source material, the idea is that like a totally different person like manifests that they are like two distinctly different <laughs> beings. Right. They're physically different in a in a like a marked way. Like no one would see the you know Jekyll or Hyde and think, oh that's Jekyll, oh that's Hyde. You know, like there would be no confusing the two of them. Where this, it's like. 
dude, what's going on with Jekyll? Like, he's fucking, <laughs> like Dr. Jekyll, like, he's smoking crack or something, right. you know? Yeah, because like, I was even going to say it could eventually reach the point of, like, an anti-drug advertisement of, like, before crack, after crack, you know, the mug shots that they would show. But even then, it's this is all just happening real time, present tense, you know? Yeah. Jekyll is always just decaying. <laughs> there is, I, I thought too at times I was like this is kind of like one of those fucked up like dare movies you know mm-hmm. because like you know he starts like spreading the you know spreading the crack pipe around and like if you just hit that thing you turn into uh, a sex crazed violent maniac and I'm yeah. thinking like yeah if this is supposed to be some kind of analogy to like the crack epidemic you know woo yeah <laughs> for sure well, and I, you know, and that, that, I think that that's there for sure to play with is maybe not necessarily just like, oh, the crack epidemic, but a critique of or the ability to kind of be with like, like, boy, the 80s, man, you know, sure. like, wow, you know, like the excess of drugs and sex and, and the me generation, right? The idea of of sort of like, like you said in that speech of just, you know, I mean, it's like Patrick Bateman, right? Gordon it's, Gecko. It's Gordon Gecko, exactly. Like, like I'm living, I'm living to the fullest at this point of my life because I'm unfettered by by anything. But again, it's like, yeah, it gets fucked up because it's like, well, this isn't two different people. It's just, it's just one, it's one guy, you know. Yeah, it's just one guy doing crack, and and like, there's no, there's no, even like with his like waking life, there's no sense that he's not aware of what he did like he keeps waking up like hung over his fuck and being like boy i really messed up last night didn't i (laughs) you know like there isn't this sense like in jekyll and hyde or in the man who haunted himself of of being totally cut off from that other person like he's very well aware of the other side's existence throughout. I was trying to remember the Barrymore one, you know, because that's like a total, he's like a monster when he's high, you know? It's like a total transformation. And I kept, that was the last one I watched, and I love the Frederick March one too, but like, I was like, I don't think he knows he's high when he's Jekyll, you know? (laughs) And Edge of Sanity was making me question my sanity, being like, I thought I knew Jekyll and Hyde pretty well, but this is just like, what's going on here, you know? (laughs) man and it's just funny how conversely with the man who haunted himself the jekyll in this is just a dude who's really really bland and doesn't have like any excitement in his life and then the exciting version of himself is still just a guy that is making merger and acquisition deals going to these billiard halls that are totally silent I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about that when he goes to the game hall and he like goes to see the boys and they don't have ambient music playing or anything like that. It is just purely gentlemen playing billiards and like not making a fuss about it. Like That's the exciting venue that his alternate self goes to, the uninhibited Pelham. Good evening, Mr. Pelham. Oh, good evening, bud. You, uh, you looking for a game? Maybe. I doubt if anyone will take you on after last Thursday. What a great game that was. Sir. Game? Okay. Oh, with, uh, with Mr. Bellamy, of course. You did say Thursday. Yes, Thursday. You, Mr. Bellamy, had won a frame each and decided on a decider. And to me, that felt, like, exceptionally British. And that's the thing, right? Like, I do think there's a connection to be made between the two films in using this premise to, like, critique society and to critique, you know, repression, conformity, 
you know, living free, that sort of thing. But you're right in, in the man who haunted himself, maybe there's even like an extra critique that can be found in this idea of like, well, what would it mean in this society even to like, to spread your wings and fly? Like, yeah. what would that actually look like, you know? And, and so it's almost like a double critique of being like, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're free to live an even more sort of like humdrum life. Like you can like, it's almost like he lives that same shitty life, but just like more deeply and without questioning it, you know, like that's the freedom that he can find. And maybe like, I'm, I'm going too far into it, you know, <laughs> to its like conclusion, you know, but it's like, it's, 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 it's well, cause it's, isn't the c- conclusion really a new beginning, you know? Right, right. A, a, a new beginning, same as, you know, same as the old or whatever. Right. Like, with, yeah. With, with more feeling this time, you know? <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, it's totally a movie that is, you know, uh, a masculinity crisis movie, you know? I mean, American and British filmmakers alike in the post-war period are obsessed with society's changing. How do these men adapt, you know? Because we learn, like, both of these uh, characters, both Jekyll and... Uh, I keep blanking Pelham. on his name. Pelham. Pelham. I was taking taking of Pelham. Yeah, <laughs> I know and that, that hit me like a thousand times when I was watching it, and I don't know why I just suddenly blanked on it. But but both Jekyll and Pelham do have one very big issue. They both have like sexual uh, sexual problems, sexual holdups. Like in Edge of Sanity, we open with this dream slash nightmare slash memory of him as a child. Like seeing this this very uh, you know sexually promiscuous woman hook up with what we ultimately learn is his father, and he's sort of in this like barn loft, like looking at her. He's like hanging above like fucking Spider Man. He's like hanging in the rafters, and like his whole belly is sagging while one arm is on like each beam. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Hillary, my girlfriend, kept just being like can't she see him there? And I was like, I think she does see yeah, him. It's a know? setup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like making eye contact with him. I mean, he's not like hiding at all. But the father initially doesn't see him. And right. The father comes in and, and starts to work the like maid, I guess, or something like that. She's like a house servant, you know? And, and he does sort of like then fall from his perch. And his father immediately starts just like beating him like bad in this barn so that sort of like scars him and and we then see Jekyll you know he's not a very like you know he's not a very lusty man at all he's very (laughs) depressed he has problems with his wife and the same thing in the man well a similar thing in the man who haunted himself although we don't know the root cause of it we just know that he and his wife have a very like frigid relationship. Yeah, he'd rather go to the marine engineer uh, boardroom meeting than have sex with his wife yeah. on loan from the Royal Shakespeare. Yeah, company. on loan. His wife on loan. Very funny. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea, right, is what she accuses him of when she says she wants to go out gambling so they just don't feel so fucking suburban for one night. And I think that that's probably the idea is that he's become an impotent man because he's so stuck in his routine. He has become like 
he's lost his masculinity because he's a prisoner of like a suburban mindset. To me, that seems to be the idea of his bland existence. A guy who wears the same tie every day, the same starched collar that he clips right back on a man of habit and routine stuck in his, just his cycle. And because of that, yeah, he's, he has no lust for life. If life is lust and learning, right? He's nothing. He, he just is just going through the motions every single day. Not like James Bond. Oh no. And not like also, you know, you want to throw another sort of pot, uh, another, you know, uh, whatever hat in the ring, Ryan, uh, you know, Roger Moore also played the saint Simon Templar, uh, who's also a bit of a sort of espionage figure. Mm. So I think also people, you know, watching this movie would have, since he wasn't bond yet, they would have been thinking like, right. The, the cool Pelham is Simon Templar, you right. know, the real Roger Moore shit. That's funny. Um, this is the first time I've seen a film of Roger Moore's that was not Bond. I know, Andy, you're oh, a fan of wow. The Wild Geese, right? Yeah, I like The Wild Geese. I mean, I've, I've, I, there's a lot of movies I've seen with Roger Moore outside of Bond. Uh, you know, I think the hard part for him, though, was like once he became Bond, he was always being cast sort of typecast as a very like similar persona. And I yeah. did like read, like, you know, researching a little bit, which which I found very interesting that that he looked at this film he as did. like very fondly. Uh, Chance because, to flex. Right, because he felt like he got to act. And I know that was like the curse of so many Bond actors, you know, was this feeling that, you know, even from Connery before him of being like, I got to get the hell out of this shit. You know, I got to go, I got to go do the hill. You know, I got to get, I got to, I got to take off my toupee and, and be, you know, grizzly. I got to meet Sidney Lumet, you know, then I can really start, start doing shit. Because like in this, it's funny that he says like, this was my opportunity to, to act, to not just be the saint, to not just, you know, sort of foreshadow what would become Bond, right. To, to do something. And yet it's like, not a lot of range, you know, no. because he's playing no. like a dude that's like sleepwalking through the yeah. whole movie, you know? I, I think he has like a lot more range of performance across his Bond films than he does within <laughs> The Man Who Haunted Himself. And I don't even think he does all that much in the Bond films, of course. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't like buy his take, but it does seem like he at least had more fun making this movie. Here's my homework for you, Ryan. Watch uh, Peter Hunt's Shout at the Devil oh, yeah. from 1976, where Lee Marvin... Another Bond alert, right? Didn't Peter Hunt direct some yeah, Bond? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's Lee Marvin and Roger Moore in German East Africa during World War One. Mm. Uh, hijinks, alcohol, colonialism... It's a mess. You Interesting. Know? Check it out. Ian Holm as well in a funny, funny bit. Yeah. Role. Yeah. They, oh, were, yeah. they were just drunk the whole time. Isn't Wild Geese also movie. in Africa? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mercenaries. Uh, it's Richard Burton, Richard Harris, and Roger Moore, the three central figures in that. And also another one, The Sea Wolf. It's very similar, very similar vibe. That's Roger Moore and Gregory Peck. But again, it's like... You know, they're they're taking over a yacht in a commando raid or some shit like that. <laughs> oh yeah. You know? In Shout at the Devil, they're ivory poachers who are just like trying not to get killed because of World War One. You know, they're just like, oh, we want to po- we want to poach because we're bad, shitty, drunk poachers. You yeah. know, I think the Sea Wolves is like they're like Boer War vets who get like 
They because they were all by that point, you know, just these old ass actors from classic Hollywood who are like, you know, let's get them in there. And the funny thing would be that like Roger Moore would be in the group as like the young guy, but he was still like fifty seven when he was like making the movies. <laughs> you know? He's like he's like the face. He's supposed to be like the young handsome, the hot one, young you guy. Yeah. Man, Marsh, I love how you're like, okay, Ryan, you got to see Shout at the Devil, and it's like a hundred and forty seven minutes, and you gave it two stars on Letterboxd. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Roger Moore's great in it, you know? I don't doubt yeah. it. I don't doubt it. I mean, the the Wild Geese is probably like a two-star movie, and that's also like easily two and a half hours, right. I would imagine. Right. Like, they all were. I think because those guys were just like drunk all the time. Everything took longer. The scenes moved the slower. Tax, the tax, like runaway productions in Africa, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, dude. Yeah. For sure. Man. Anyway, back to hauntings. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just thinking about how like, because this has got a bond in it that the film has such odd trivia that you come across because it receives so much more scrutiny just by nature of having a bond and then having all these like freaks on the internet. I have to read this bit of IMDb trivia that I found on this film that eight people found helpful out of ten. It says, this is the first of three movies starring Sir Roger Moore which have included the phrase, the man, in the title. They are... This movie, The Man with the Golden Gun, 1974, and The Man Who Wouldn't Die, 1994, the latter being made for television. Moore also appeared in episodes of The Saint, such as The Man Who Gambled with Life. In fact, there was a The Man Who episode in almost every season of The Saint. So the more you know. (laughs) The Man Who. Eight people found that helpful on yeah. IMDb. That's yeah. good. Helpful for what? I, I don't really know. But. <laughs> the man who? Well, what, you know, uh, did any? Did either of you uh, watch the Hitchcock pre- Presents episode based on the case, the strange case of Mister Pella? I did. I did not. No. I did. See, and even that, right? The, it's called The Strange Case of Mr. Pelham, which shows that they're very clearly riffing off of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So true. So true. Well, yeah, because uh, that's the name of the book. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, the title yeah. of the book. How is the Hitchcock episode? I'd seen it before. It's really good, but it's, you know, it's 30 minutes, and it you don't get anything about his personal life. It's just like he, the, the structure is like Tom Ewell just like stumbles into this bar and he's like, doctor, I got to talk to someone. And he sits him down and he just starts flashing back to, Oh, my double, the, the double or whatever. And then like, you know, it, it ends the same way, right. With, you know, whatever we'll get there but like uh it's just this guy in a bar talking to a doctor and then it just flashes back to certain key elements and it's like out in 27 minutes you know well <laughs> yeah does he mean no mergers and acquisitions <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> you know? yeah. no he's single like it has none mm, of that interesting you know? interesting it just has the idea that like got people are coming up to him and being like saw you at the, at the snooker hall you know and he's just triggered <laughs> yeah. man how about his like freaky twin book Oh my god, I was waiting for you to bring up the children. This was totally one of those movies where I was like, Ryan is going to have a field day with this, and especially <laughs> like the ADR. Or oh my her. god. Where's Daddy? I've done a painting of your car all smashed up. Oh, Michael, you're covered in it. Can't I leave you for a second? I said you'd be cross. 
Mommy, is that man gone yet? Mommy hasn't. Now, will you both go back upstairs again at once? Or if that's just how those devil children sound. Yeah, what are they, like, <laughs> named Luigi or some shit? Or was that, just, was that the that's servant? The, that's the, yeah, that's the house. Oh, my servant. God. I thought the, the kids were named thing. Luigi. Sorry. Oh, my God. No, yeah. Well, I was confused about Luigi, too, because at first when he comes home and she's like, we got all this Italian food that I was supposed to cook for, or like that we have ready for dinner. And he's like, I got to go back. Mergers and acquisitions is coming back up again, honey. Like, I got to go. And she's like, the Italian, like... Oh, the poor Luigi. And I didn't I didn't realize Luigi was like a guy in this movie. I thought she was just being weird British and like making an Italian joke. And then later in the film when Roger Moore calls the house, like over an hour into this movie, and then Luigi picks up the phone and we learn that the help is like an Italian man named Luigi. That was too much for me. I, I yeah, They're really arguing about the pasta in that scene. <laughs> and that's actually like a commonality between the films is there are extended scenes of husband, just like terrible marriages, you know? And like these just like, because these guys are so, rep- so repressed or whatever, it's like the wives are like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And this just like keeps happening, especially in The Man Who Haunted Himself. Just so many interminable like scenes between the two of them. Just like, why are you never here? Why are you like this? Why are you so cold? You know? And then it's just like another scene like that. I mean, it's amazing. Dude, I was cracking up in, in Edge of Sanity. Again, like the first time I watched it, I kind of was just like, whoa, this movie... The second time around, I was like laughing a lot more. Just the kind of like the like the, the darkness and the absurdity and the bleakness of a lot of that. Like, yeah, you know, both characters have lovely wives. They have just lovely wives who just want them to just have the wonderful relationship that clearly must have brought them together in the first place, you know, and, and the wives are certainly trying very hard. And in like edge of sanity, there's this really funny moment to me where like his poor wife is just trying to like talk to him about like plans with some friends, you know, and he's just getting like, so like anxious and tense and frustrated by her talking to him just about like, yeah, well, you know, I, I talked to the Carters about doing, you know, dinner or whatever, and just got to nail these plans down. And he's just kind of like, I can't focus on this right now. And it's like cut to him in the laboratory with his monkey, just smoking crack right after that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I was just kind of like, yeah, like this is just a movie about a guy. I mean, fuck Jekyll and Hyde. It's just about a guy who just like discovers crack yeah. and how awesome it is, it is. and how everything else sucks compared to smoking crack you know like i mean even in the beginning of the movie like he's already been doing it you know we learn that right away because like the whole premise is that he's he's doing medical research with cocaine very like the nick you know where he's like this doctor that's like hey this is so a wonder drug cocaine into your eyeball yeah oh yeah there's God. a <laughs> disgusting little like surgery where you know he tells this guy like how lucky he is that he's about to get cocaine injected into his eyeball you know but like in the beginning, like he's taking notes and he's just got this like mound of Coke next to him. And he's just like, like just snorting it a little bit. And like, man, this is good shit. Like this makes me feel really good. And then like (laughs) beyond that, there's, there's just like this monkey, Charlie, his, his monkey. And I guess the experiment is also just him feeding spoonfuls of cocaine to this monkey. You know, very, very turn of the century. Like, medical experiment like i have a monkey and i'm just gonna feed it cocaine and see what the fuck happens you know but it's actually the monkey that that does 
create the, the breakthrough of making crack, yeah. turning coke into crack. It spills some like some ether. liquid. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another thing that doesn't make any sense because, of course, the point of all those gothic stories is that, like, man was playing God and then there's, like, retribution for doing that through science. But by making it an accident, uh, it really is not, you know, it's nothing. I mean, I guess it was what he was doing, but, like, it just doesn't, it just yeah. doesn't hit like it's yeah. supposed to. No. Nah. He just, he tripped into this and, and then was like, man, this shit is awesome. You know, I love this stuff. Yeah, so it wasn't hubris. It was the monkey. <laughs> it was the monkey, Charlie. Man, now I'm imagining Pelham coming home and feeding the cocaine to his two evil twin boys. I don't want them they to get... They were on enough of it, I dude. know, yeah. I don't want them to get lost in the shuffle because they that was crazy, those boys. When they first spoke, Molly immediately gasped. And she's like, why do these boys sound like men? Daddy, what lies at the bottom of the sea and quivers? Oh, God, not riddles. You give up? All right, what does lie on the bottom of the sea and quiver? A nervous wreck. <laughs> it's for you. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> like, what? like, what is going on? At first she was like, is that Roger Moore doing the voice of the boys? <laughs> like, what the hell is happening? They were, yeah, those boys. They're like the most British-looking boys in their bunk beds. Uh, don't look anything like Roger Moore. Very frightening. No. They look more like Luigi than they do look like Roger Moore. <laughs> yeah, I I was thinking about the song that that is like the motif in this movie, like the LP, which I'm pretty sure I like on the cover it said like Greece revisited or mm-hmm. something. Uh, but I love again this idea that this film is like trying to be blow up or like trying to be trying to be anything and it's like so far from that because it's like oh this is the song that helped him helped him heal after his car accident and it's just like the lightest soft rock. It's a Muzak. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I love this Muzak LP. And like, even when he goes to, you know, the photographer's apartment, I feel like that whole subplot with the photographer who's, you know, having an affair with the doppelganger. So when she sees like the real Pelham, he's like, what? What's going on? Or whatever. But he like goes to her apartment. And it's like the records there, and there's like these photos. But again, it's like so tame compared to any like actual, you know, swinging London film or whatever. Yeah, the the like the the seedy photographs that he that he discovers is just like <laughs> one of just like him standing looking like, like put, holding a drink and looking good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's I thought there was like another one where he just looked like confused in his suit. Yeah, you know, just like she just snapped them coming through the doorway, and him like, "What's that? Oh, you're taking pictures." Yeah, they look yeah. like the headshots that he submitted to the Broccoli's to like get the part of James Bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a Chivas advertisement, dude. Well, we should probably get in a little bit to the sort of espionage aspect of Man Who Haunted Himself because it was, of course, uh, making me go back to our paranoid episode and do our paranoid mindset because he's embroiled in this merger because his marine firm has you know developed some like automation technology it's a huge deal but his doppelganger is like leaking secret information to this other company and orchestrating a takeover in which he's going to be like promoted to this other company and 
And By a certain, double crossing yeah. his, you know, loyal compatriots at the firm he's worked at for however many years. Yeah, you know? where the other Pelham is like urging them not to do this sort of acquisition, right? And there's a certain point where they're in like the the you know electronics general headquarters, which is like this other company, and they basically give a go ahead for like a dossier fifty one style operation at a certain point they do. where they're like, oh well, you know they don't want to they don't want to do this deal anymore. Well, we're gonna have to, you know, bring in, you know, the big guns or whatever. Yeah. But do we ever really figure out what they did? Because I was thinking about that. Like, we're at a certain point, I'm like, are they in on this doppelganger plot? Or is it just uh, like the doctor? Was the doctor sent by that no. company? Because the doctor crucially sort of like kidnaps him uh, <laughs> right as the deal's being closed, but yeah. that thread is never tied. Like, no, it, does, it doesn't make any sense. It seemed to me that they just like asked his friend, you know, who was also part of his company. Yeah. And that guy was like, all right, I'll check in on all of this. I'll be double checking Tony, right? Yeah. His buddy, Tony, Alex, 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 right? Alex. Yeah. yeah. Alex. Because they even were like, Alex, don't you know anybody over there? And he's like, yeah, I got a friend over there. It's like, they, that's what I took from it. Because Alex seems to be the one that starts to follow up on a lot of these leads and then like confront him and be like, well, they said that you were the one who suggested this, right? So it seems like, the, you know, for this being this like weird, like, oh, you know, corporate espionage, like they're all just like constantly like, talking face to face and being like, yeah. well, are you guys trying to fuck us or whatever? No, it's like, that's, no, that's so funny. Like I wasn't, I think you might be overthinking it, Marsh. I think it is like as at, you could take it at face value because when he does go visit the psychiatrist, uh, he does, you know, then later when his double shows up at work and his secretary's like, what are you doing here? You said you're going to be gone for a few days. And maybe I actually can't remember if the scene happens live or is inferred to later, but he's just like, Oh no, I decided to come in. I just assumed that that's what he did with his full board. He, you know, they never knew he was away. I don't think the doctor was in on it at all. I think that was like an independent doctor that, cause he's equally confused at the end when the doctor sees the two Pelhams, the doctor's like, Oh fuck. Like what's, and yet the doctor was a perfect part of the plan because he got him to dress differently for the climactic showdown, you know? Like, yeah. again, they fucked up in not, like, going all the way with that. I think it was, know? like, bad luck. I think that was the idea. <laughs> that, that he dressed up that way and that's what, like, cursed him. You know, it's sure. like, oh, the irony. Like, of course, the one time I try to shake up my routine, now I'm being accused of not being me, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think well, that was just happenstance. <laughs> See, you got paranoid yeah. watching the man you haunted Exactly. Himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was like, to what extent are they running like a deep operation here? And it turns out none at all, you know? Well, I, again, I got to imagine it would be very confusing for them to be <laughs> trying to run that kind of operation when everyone keeps talking to the guy you know like everyone just you know, it's more that like he's not pulling something he's pulling a switcheroo it's just like this guy's you know he's just he's either forgetful or an asshole or you know yeah he is losing his mind or something like that you know um everyone seems baffled but but also like no one's in panic mode everyone just no. seems to be like well 
clearly, like, however this plays out, we're all still going to be fine, right? <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. everyone, these are all yeah. rich guys in London. No one's like, well, we're going to, the whole company's going to go down the drain if this happens, you know? It is, like, very, very, yeah, it's very, very lazy. It's like, it's, Dude. it's moneyed, you know? That's what it is. I love the president of the board. You know, the big climax for him is he's just like, I just don't understand business anymore. Oh you know? He's like, yeah. like this is too cutthroat. You know? yeah. It's like, it's really not that cutthroat. You know? like, <laughs> yeah. I've seen Demon Lover. It's fine. You know? But that's the thing. Like Basil Dearden is the board president. You know, to him, this is cutthroat. This is new business. He's the guy that classical filmmaker, right? This is to him, this is really shaking it up. And this is him saying, I need to step away. Like this is now a, a new man's game. I can't, I can't do business the way that Roger Moore does when he's uninhibited. Yeah. 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 It's funny too, that you brought up blow up. Cause I was just going to think like, yeah, watches Antonioni once and thinks he's, <laughs> thinks he's got it all figured when, out. Uh, you know? Dude, <laughs> when I was watching the climax of, of man who haunted himself, Sherman came in, I was out here. He came in, he was like, it was like John Borman's, <laughs> John Borman's <laughs> blow up or whatever. I was cracking up. I love his, like that Dearden's idea of a visual joke or some sort of flourish in the middle of this movie is when we are getting the footage of Roger Moore's double having those private meetings with the other company and like letting him know of their secret technology that's going to like, you know, cut... Uh, it's going to make everything 30% more efficient and they're going to revolutionize whatever their fucking industry is. And then it's like the second time they meet and he's like, and the second time we met was really out there. And we have a shot of like a satellite in space and you think it's kind of like Moonraker, you know, predating Moonraker, but it was just a planetarium and that's like Basil Dearden's idea of like a big flourish, you know, it's like, ah, I got you. I thought it was an homage to Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah, I immediately did think it was a planetarium. That was... <laughs> so did I. <laughs> I like, in no way thought they were in space, of course, but still. <laughs> yeah. You're right, though. That That is like the, the, the one of like the the funniest moments in the film, the the clandestine meetings that he sets yeah. up, you know, yeah. the cloak and dagger stuff where, yeah, they're, they're at like a tourist attraction and they go to the planetarium and then the, the final meeting is just two guys in suits and bowler hats sitting in a rowboat in the middle of a pond or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. That, that one like made no sense to me. I was like, I was trying to figure out what Basil's sense of humor was, that it was just like those guys hunched over in a little boat, like a little love boat. So perplexing. Yeah, it's funny. It yeah, is funny. I it mean, is funny. It's just so it's so, it's so dry, though. It's so you know, that's the thing. It's so British, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a dude who... Who, you know, as Marsh pointed out, had his up and coming at Ealing, you know? Like. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he directed, you know, the seminal British caper film, League of Gentlemen, which is about a bunch of ex-World War II veterans who 15 years after the war are all like defeated and have no sense of self or masculinity and they're all cucked and then like their old squad leader calls them back for one more commando action and they do like a bank robbery uh great film but yeah a great film 20 years ago you know 10 years ago um you for know sure. again i'm you know i would i would also categorize myself like you marsh as like a a, a i guess a dearden apologist as you put it or defender oh, yeah. you know because I, 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 there's quite a few of his movies that I, I do really like, 
but yeah, I think the, the, the latest one that I'm like, wow, that's really good. is like 1962, you know, uh, the mind benders, I think is from 62 with Dirk Bogart, oh, yeah. which has a, again, a sort of similar kind of like his attempt at doing something confusing, ambiguous slash sort of sci-fi. But you know, the one movie of his that I kept coming back to while I was watching this was, was victim yeah. also starring Dirk, Dirk Bogart, Bogart, which is sort of about again, double lives, repression, English society. But you see there, I mean, he's just going full, almost like social realist mode with it. You know, it's like, it's an issues film. It's not meant to be the sort of like pseudo Antonioni uh, ephemera, right? Where we lose track of reality. Like victim is about Dirk Bogard who plays a, a closeted homosexual barrister, right? He's homosexual. And then it's like this whole thing. He's being blackmailed and he's being, you know, at the time it was still, I believe illegal in, uh, Britain to be like an open homosexual and Dirk Bogart's basically like losing his mind, living this kind of double life, but now having to out himself to defend himself and clear his name. And it was very like cutting edge kind of film. And Dearden had a few of those like tackling like Sapphire dude, Sapphire. which is a, you know, a murder mystery about like interracial relationships in England in the sixties. But those films were very clearly like delineated, you know, from the other like genre programmers he did. He had a, a big streak in him of these sort of like social issue films, but he never really mixed, you know, the social issue film and something like the man who haunted himself, which is so clearly like, yeah, a Hitchcock movie, you know, a Hitchcock presents episode yeah. with Roger Moore and Roger Moore is no Dirk Bogard. That's he, very true. That's very true. And I'll tell you what, Dirk Bogard, Man, he would have made a fucking James Bond, wouldn't he? Holy shit. Fassbinder's James Bond. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, I was even thinking that The Man Who Haunted Himself would be kind of an interesting plot for a James Bond film where people are like, James, like you were seen doing this. And have they like, ever done two Bonds? No, they've never done a Bond double. You heard it here first. Right? I think it'd make a good film. The Sixth Day, dude, with Bond. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, isn't... Isn't there like a spoof Bond where it's kind of like there's multiple James Bonds? Uh, oh, is, isn't is the original Casino Royale kind of like that? I've never seen that. Yeah, the, uh, there's like the multiple actors ca- playing Bond in it. Yeah, because that's with Peter Sellers. Yeah, right? and there's yeah. like there's a James Bond who's just like a dope, and then there's the James Bond who's the spy, if I'm not mistaken, in it. Mm. But that's not like multiple. I guess it's multiple bonds, but yeah, that's know. like the only like borderline canonical bond I haven't seen. Cause I guess there's like a couple of those maybe like TV movies. You know, it's funny. We've been, we've been kind of like uh, poking fun at the sort of like lackluster investigatory skills or espionage skills of the people involved and the man who haunted himself. But there's also like a very, very, very yeah. inept investigation taking place throughout Edge of Sanity, right? Yeah. Which we haven't really gotten into, but as we alluded to it, I think, um, what the director's done here is is sort of smash Jekyll and Hyde into the, the, the legend of Jack the Ripper. So he's not Henry Hyde, he's Jack Hyde. And he is uh, very quickly cutting up sex workers around the east end of London and Scotland Yard does get involved. They get on the case and and one of them, you know, points out clearly these women have have not been cut so much as they've been 
ripped, ripped, ripped apart. Um, but they really don't do a very good job living up to the reputation of Scotland Yard because there are witnesses to several of these crimes. Eyewitnesses yeah. on the scene who have seen <laughs> who've seen this man doing <laughs> his dirty work. And as we pointed out, there's no difference between Jekyll and Hyde. There is no physical yeah. difference other than like some some, you know, again, just imagine Anthony Perkins on a on a crack binge for like 2 days straight. Yeah. That's his hair difference. is just moist. Yeah, his his hair is like wet, you know, it's not <laughs> slicked back. His eyes have like red circles around them, but that's it, you know. And I got to imagine if they'd interviewed anybody in the East End because he's not hiding his crime is very much at all. And he is going back to the scene of multiple crimes. He's returning several times over. And he's they, leaving evidence. He's leaving it. They cannot figure this out. Even when they know the work's been done with a scalpel by a trained surgeon like Jekyll, who is interviewed by Scotland Yard and, of course, is like just so strung out, you know. It wouldn't take Columbo, I think, to put two and two together in this case. He would have wrapped it up real quick. Yeah, but uh, they sure let the crimes continue. They really don't do a very good job at all. No, no, yeah, they, they, they certainly don't. I, yeah, I loved when they brought him in. And they're like, we want you to like take a look at this body and let us know if you think that this was the work of a surgeon. And he sees the mutilated body, and he's just like... The way he butchered them. Butchered, you say? I understood the man had a rather precise grasp of human anatomy. Why did you think that? Well, the newspapers. Ah. Yes. Is that what they said? Yes, also that you had a witness, someone who could identify this... Doctor. Doctor. <laughs> Surely you don't believe the killer is a doctor. Uh, absolutely not. Like, there's no way a surgeon could have, uh, any doctor could have done something like this. And they're just like, okay. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, good enough for me. Yeah. Uh, no, they dropped the ball uh, on this one. He was clearly just walking around the whole time. The only difference is, like, in the morning, uh, he wasn't that goth. And then at night, he was, like, full goth. Yeah, full yeah. goth. Dude. These are, like, also lightning, you know, uh, like, lightning strike movies. There's lots of, uh, like, <laughs> animated cinematic thunderstorms in both films at key moments, you know? yeah. There's a lot of bad. There's a shot at the very end of the man who haunted himself after his double chases him off a bridge and his Roger Moore's car like crashes into the river or whatever. There's this extremely artificial matte shot of Roger Moore standing on the busted bridge because of clearly they couldn't actually destroy that bridge. Um, but it's funny that they decided to shoot it in a wide knowing it would look just so shitty. It might have looked nice if it was a painting in a film from the 50s or something. <laughs> but, yeah, it is full. That movie also has a, a bunch of, like, funny optical tricks that look very dated, even for 1970. Although I got to say, the the sequence where he's in his car uh, and it goes, like, yeah, just, like, full psychedelia for a little while. That is I good. actually thought that was pretty sick. Right? Yeah. All the, like, yeah, the colors and the images reflected in the rearview mirror when they get fractured and there's, like, 20 Roger Moores screaming and terror and maniacal laughter. Those are all really cool images 
that I'll always think of when I think of James Bond now, because you don't get to see something that stylish typically with a Bond actor front and center, you know? It's funny how clean, like how cleanly shot and edited that sequence is too, while also being like, again, I think it's very impressive. It's fast paced. Mm -hmm. It dabbles in psychedelia. Like it achieves the intended effect, but compared to anything actually psychedelic, like it's just so crisp and slow. Yeah. Like, and yeah. here's a nice lockdown shot of the rear view mirror. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, we're like, following the thread too easily. Yeah, <laughs> but it's still fucking perfect. I mean, like it's it really is a high energy chase, and I think it's yeah. I think the chases on the highway are the standout, you know, sort of sequences of the movie. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is you think that Edge of Sanity especially like considering the title, uh, it, it was so ripe for going into that mode, into going into a, a, a place of more, you know, um, almost like experimental play on doubles and, and this guy actually losing his mind. But in this case, it's mostly just Anthony Perkins like cradling a crack pipe and like (laughs) hugging the walls of whatever space he's in. I mean, it's like, and again, like credit where credit is due. Like I think Perkins does a really, really fantastic job in like filling this role and like clearly like getting into it and having fun with it, you know, for being something that's late in his career and, and probably from his perspective, just to sort of like, Okay, it's 1989. What else am I doing? I'll I'll take money. I'll do stuff. You know, he's doing all the psycho films at this point. Psycho two, Psycho three, Psycho four. Um, but he's like game, and oh, yeah. I think he really like sells it. You know, in his physicality and just like his body. Like Hillary at one point was like, "Is he wearing like shoulder pads?" I'm like, "No, Hillary. That's just Perkins. He's just a gangly motherfucker." And like that adds so much to his performance just the way that he looks like you said he 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 becomes this almost like expressionistic villain because of just his body and the way that the camera and the light is able to sort of capture him like i think that like is a major draw to like anybody that would be curious to check this film out it's like perkins is 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 going berserk and and he sells it very well yeah, he makes it very watchable. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's Perkins and he's got his cane and he's hobbling around, but it's so physical and it's so much about how he moves and his physique. That's why I thought of Caligari. It's like, yeah. that's it. You know, he's really like melding into these spaces, you know? <laughs> and a little, uh, you know, of course, I thought of our old friend, Alain Robegrier, uh, in oh, some yeah. of it's sort of like, more abstracted sacrilege in like, you know, the, the sexy nightclub where, uh, behind certain curtains, there's like, you know, upside down crosses and naked people playing the cello and people getting like tortured or whatever. Oh yeah, dude. He goes to like the, the robe Grier club. I mean, that's the brothel that he's hanging out at. And even beyond that too, like almost all the sex workers portrayed throughout the film, they all like prominently are like wearing uh, crucifixes, like big, like bobbly crystal 
earrings, like massive crucifixes. Like there's crucifixes dangling from their waists. I mean, and like he's often like framed with like his his face next to like one of these women's like crotches, and there's just like a big crucifix like hanging down. Like the imagery and the the attempt at sort of like playing with sacrilege, like it it smashes you in the face like multiple times. And there's a great shot of Anthony Perkins looking up a woman's butt. Which we like. I did oh, like yeah. that shot. Yeah. Yeah. The the one really early on where she's yeah. like wearing yeah, the 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 tights. <laughs> that is like a very funny shot. <laughs> because the way it's blocked, just because that's like really what it is. It's as if he's like looking deep up that that woman's butt. It's just a man marveling at a butt. Yeah, look, he had the, a tough time in the barn when he was a boy, and, you know, now he's looking up her butt, you know? <laughs> Here's the thing that, that for me, you know? like, really, again, like, brings these two movies together. It's, you know, again, and, like, thinking about the doubles uh, that both these films are playing with, um, I think that both films make a case that the the doubles that emerge from inside of our, of our, of our titular characters are ultimately better versions of themselves originally. <laughs> and maybe better is not the best word, but yeah. certainly more more <laughs> dynamic and more actualized. Like both of these men, or I, yes, well, both of the doubles are out there living their best lives, you know, while the other guys are languishing in repression and, and suffocating home lives, you know? Like... In The Man Who Haunted Himself, if you really take a step back and he's just like horrified by this double, and if we're supposed to be in his shoes of being like, I can't believe this is happening, what's his double off doing? He's off like tearing it up on the snooker table. You know, everyone's just like, dude, you were a legend, man. The shots you made, the guys coming up stuffing, you know, five pounds in his pocket being like, I owed you man for that amazing game you played. Right. He's, he's, you know, romancing the sexy French photographer. He's out there actually like making the business deal. You know, he's out there getting shit done. And then eventually romancing his wife, you know, in a very confusing way. We're like, Oh, he's back. He's, He's taking his wife out on the town, but it's not him. It's the double taking the wife out for the dance at the swinging club, you know? And like Perkins, I mean, yeah, murder aside, boy, he is having a ball out there on the East End. You he's know? working out his trauma. Yeah, 100%, you know? He's he's dealing with his sexual repression. There's no more He's just shaming, loving you know? drugs. He's just loving the yeah. drugs. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. He's, he's loving drugs. He's got this cool monkey buddy, you know? I mean, there's like a moment where there's this kind of like street hawker whose job is to sort of like pull men into the brothel, you know, his job is sort of like, Hey, I got a, I got a great brothel over here. Come, come join us for a good time. And as he's like stomping down the street, you know, in his like crack fueled, like mania, the guy's like, Hey, you know, like how's your evening going or whatever you want to have some fun. And like Perkins just like turns to him and says like, but I am, I'm having a marvelous time. <laughs> I'm like, he is again, you know, brutal slayings aside, like, the guy is just having a marvelous time out there. That's right. We're, uh, yeah, we're pro-doppelganger on this podcast. <laughs> yes. And, and ultimately, I mean, that's where both films end up. The, you know, the doppelgangers or, or whatever sort of supersede uh, the original. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I appreciated that about both films, like in, in a major way, you know, I, I would think so much less of both of these films if it ended, you know, in the, the, like the original, like regaining control of their life, you know, I, in that sort of, you know, restorative way of being like, oh, well, you know, the good boring guy. Yeah. Like, abolish the monster. Right. Know? Yeah. I think both of these films do the right thing, which is like, give us a much darker ending in both cases. Oh yeah. 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 What's like the final scene of edge of sanity. How does it like close? Um, you think he's dead, but he's not. Then he kills his wife. And then the, uh, I feel like it just like dissipates. It like zoom. Yeah. Well, it just like zooms in on the window. And I think he's just like that. Like, you know, Oh, that's right. It's got that freeze like, frame. You know, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. He's still out there. Permanently crack addled. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he like sees the inspector and the inspector's like, well, uh, yeah, okay, I'll see you later. <laughs> and then it just like zooms in on the window or whatever. Right. And he's just like, dun dun. Yeah. <laughs> he cuts his wife's throat and blood all over the screen. Yeah. And again, like the, the investigator is like, so someone just broke in last yeah. night and brutally murdered your wife in wow. the same way. <laughs> Crazy. Like, yeah. Crazy well, to think about. Yeah. You know, it's a sort of London's a rough town, you know? Like, all right, well, have a good day, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and then he's just like peeking through the curtain. It's like, can I go smoke some more crack? Like, I fucking love it, dude. As uh, Alfred Hitchcock said about Pelham when he introduced it, it's, uh, you know, there's no murder in it, and yet it's one of the scariest stories he'd ever read, you know, or whatever. Uh, And he gets hauled off at the end of the episode saying, but I'm Alfred Hitchcock, I can prove it. (laughs) And these cops just, like, haul him off, dude. It's so funny riffing on Pelham. (laughs) Well, I guess before we haul you off accusing you of being a double of yourself, what what are some other doubles in cinema that um, have tickled your fancy? Well, a very obvious one, but uh, I would be remiss not to mention the greatest one of all, Dead Ringers by David Cronenberg, two Jeremy Irons for the price of one, two gynecologists, one girlfriend, one apartment. Oh, man, a deeply (laughs) upsetting film, uh, which I once, uh, you know, suggested that my friends who are twins watch uh and that didn't go great dusty if you're listening i'm i'm sorry um maybe a lesser known one that i'm a big fan of is bruce robinson's follow-up to with nail and i how to get ahead in advertising where richard e grant is an advertising executive who has to come up with you know, like a new slogan and campaign for pimple cream. And he's so stressed out that he grows a pimple, which is a doppelganger of Richard E. Grant as it grows larger and larger and ultimately sort of consumes uh, the original. Uh, Great film. Yeah, long, long out of print on the Criterion Collection. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hard movie to see. I remember really liking that movie. Yeah, it rips. Well, uh, it was my turn to pick the topic this week. But next week, it is once again Andy's topic. What do you got for us this time? Well, you know, big news 
out of the Northeast, these, uh, these Canadian uh, wildfires, man, this is crazy. And I've just been seeing all these images, you know. The White Sox were in New York to play the Yankees. The question, are they going to be able to play? I mean, holy crap, you can't see your hand in front of your face. The smoke is so thick. It's otherworldly. And, uh, you know, I was just sort of reflecting, you know, we've done a lot of different episodes uh, in the past on, you know, certain geographical locations and times of the year and some elements. I think there's one that we haven't really touched upon yet that seems perfect at this particular moment. So where there's smoke, there's fire. So next week... Let's heat things up with some fire on the screen. Bring me movies about fire. <laughs> We're going to burn it up. Prometheus bound. Let's go. Um, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. This work gets made me. What? Exhausted. A bit mad. Not myself, but now that it's over, after the presentation, I promise everything will be the way it was. No. No, it won't. <laughs>